You're listening to a Glasgow Women's Library podcast. This is part of our 21 Revolutions programme, celebrating two decades of changing minds at Glasgow Women's Library. For more information on the library, our 21 Revolutions programme, or any of our other work, visit our website at womenslibrary.org.uk. Initially, I really wanted it to be narrated by a woman because it was for the women's library and it was about a woman. But this character just kept coming up all the time. George, the boyfriend of, of this young woman who wanted to marry her, because I, I thought it, it, the woman cannot narrate it, obviously. And if her mother or her sister or someone narrated it, it would be different. And there was this, somehow this voice of George kept coming and there was a great tenderness about him and a great you know and, and I just I, I wanted to keep that and I kept working well what could he be doing so the idea of him working in a draper shop and having left the factory because he could no longer bear the, the that and the idea that the ironies again of the fabric and all the rest of it and, and so on and the colours so there was a lot to work with in terms of the imagery of yellow the imagery of dust the imagery of you know the colour and the, the, the textile and the fabric and, and all those things, which of course are generally quite, I suppose, quite feminine things, seen as feminine things, but also seen through the eyes of this very gentle man. Lassie We Ayala Coty by Anne Donovan. I lift three rolls for the shelf, lay them on the wooden counter. These are our finest cottons, miss. Any of these would make a lovely frock for the summer. She feels the fabric between her fingers, tests the softness. Her mother stands beside her, stares critically at the cloth. Blue is not your colour, Eleanor. It makes you look washed out. And Alice is wearing pink, so I must have something different. I stand attentive, but allowing them time to examine the material. I've been in the shop three years now and have learned how to deal with customers, when to give them time, when to make a wee suggestion. My father cries me a big jessie for working in a draper's, but my mother was glad when I gave up the factory. I wanted a job in the park, among the floors, but they weren't taking on any men, nay Catholics anyhow. And as long as I'm away for the stir and the racket, I can thole my dad's jokes about me knitting him a jumper for his Christmas. Mr James, who owns the shop, is a fair man, and I've come to enjoy the beauty of the fabrics, the touch of silk and linen and wool under my hand. It soothes me. I just can't decide. The young lady's eyes scan the shelves. What about those? These are a slightly heavier weight, miss. Not as delicate but they'll make up well too. I set them on the counter, bold and brash beside the cotton lawns. I love this one. It's so cheery, isn't it, mother? The mother looks unimpressed. I never liked yellow. It's such a vulgar colour. Mother, you're so old-fashioned. Everyone's wearing yellow now. If that's your choice, we shall take it. She turns to me. Five yards, please. Have it put on my account and sent to the house this afternoon. Certainly, madam. Will you be wanting any lining? 
In the back, folding the fabric into its parcel, my hand trembles. The yellow background glares at me. Its brightness hurts my eyes. Sarah, 18 year old and as bonny a lass as you'd ever set eyes on. I met her at the dancing. In the midst of the smoke and noise of folk talking over the music, she seemed to glow like an angel in the gaslight, gowding hair and skin that sparkled. It's as if someone had sprinkled you with stardust, I said. No, that first night, of course. I was far too shy to talk to a lassie like that. If it hadn't been for my pal Wally, who fancied her pal, I might never have asked her up. But once we were dancing, her saft curls touching my skin as we burrowed under the lights, I was in love. Folk talk about love at first sight. They say it's all blathers, but it isn't. There was Sarah and me, and that was it. I walked her home that night. The four of us went together, me with Sarah and Wally with Maggie, our pal who stayed up the same close. We all sang as we went, the words of the last waltz stuck in our heads. Lassie wear a yellow coatie, will ye wed a moorland jockey? That's you, George, said Wally. Still has the hay stuck behind his ears this year. Sarah lived in one of these streets in the Calton that my mother thought wasn't good enough for us. When we got to the building, Wally led Maggie through the close to the back court so they could winch in the darkness. But I stood like a chicky at the front entrance. A light burned in a second flare windy. Who's waiting up for you? I asked. My mammy. My daddy's dead and my wee brothers will be in bed. I need to be awfully quiet in case I wake them up. It's a single end we're in. Even in the dim light, she was that douce and sweet. I shifted from one fit to the other. What about you, George? Where'd you stay? Out at the cross, close next to the butchers. They're big hussies. Yous must be posh. No, really. Me and my dad and my brother are all working, but... I felt embarrassed that we had a room which was never used, except for visitors. My mother and father slept in the recess of the room, while me and Francis shared the bed in the kitchen. I heard Maggie giggling. Then Wally emerged from the close, straightening his tie. You're in a dwam, George. Is that ready? I turn and Mr James is standing next to me. I'll just be a minute. Well, when you've finished, there's new stock waiting to be marked into the book. Then you can go for your dinner. The day I take my pieces and head down Argyle Street into Glasgow Green. It's a fine April day. Blue sky and white clouds burling. Me and Sarah walked there often on a Sunday afternoon. The lying straight road to the fountain was I mobbed with courting couples and families enjoying a day out. We'd watch the Waynes playing and I'd imagine us with bairns of Lorraine. I worked in the factory then. Lying hard shifts. I hated the clatter and coarseness of it, but I was strong. I thawed it. The money was better than most places, and every week I went to the savings bank on the corner and added to my account. My brother Francis spent every penny, took lassies out to fancy tea shops and bought them wee presents. I thought he was daft. I'm a country boy at heart. We'd come to the city when I was 13 and I longed to go back, 
dreamed of setting up home with Sarah, somewhere clean and fresh. There was one thing in my mind, and that was our future. I had my eye on a ring in Archer's window, a ring I was going to give Sarah when I proposed. I wanted to wait till I could do it right, had enough to set us up in a place of worry. I'd seen too many of my pals start married life squashed up with their parents or in one room in a crumbling building. I didn't want that. Now I imagine a scabby wee room somewhere, just me and Sarah, and I think it could be heaven. I never go anywhere these days. My brother tries to get me to go to the dancing with him, but I can't. Saturdays after the shop closes... I walk. I feel close to Sarah, as if she's by my side. Down her up tune, through Blythswood Square, where the posh houses are, along Charing Cross and Heed West. It's cleaner here, less works and smoke, and it has no memories. Sarah never mentioned her work. Nobody did. Why would you? You spent all the years stuck somewhere you didn't want to be, Doing something you didn't want to do. Once you were out, you just wanted to forget it. I only mind her talking about it the one time. In the wee cafe at the cross on a Sunday afternoon. We'd been for a walk in the green. Oh, such a bonny day it was and her cheeks were pink and flushed with the wind. She'd a blue costume on. A pot of tea and two scones on a plate in front of us. I'm ready for this after that walk, she said. Aye. I looked at her, bricked and shining like a new penny. I near did it, near blurted it out, never waited till I'd saved up, just asked her right then. She'd taken off her gloves to eat her scone, and I could see her looking at her horns. What is it? I asked. She showed me her thumbnail. Round the edge glinted a rim of gold. You're like a princess in a fairy tale, I said. Ah, George, you're such a blather. She laughed. Then she frowned, rubbing the mark with her hanky. I thought I'd washed it all out, but it gets everywhere, this yellow. We're all the same, the lassies. Everything gets clattered with it, your hair and clays and skin. You should see the state of going home at night for the own place. Last Saturday, I was coming back from a walk. I'd been to the art galleries, numbed my mind, looking at the fine pictures and strange objects in glass cases, worn out my body by walking and walking the park. It was dark, sometime after nine when I passed out of Blythewood Square. A big house was blazing with light, every windy a picture, folk in fancy goons, dancing and talking. A carriage drew up and a gentleman came out to help the lady out. It was the fabric I recognised, guy and gaudy. That's a stunning frock, Miss Montague, said the man. You'll be the belle of the ball. She stood on the pavement, looking fresh and young. Dark hair, carefully arranged, her skirts swaying rounder, the colour of daffodils. As the carriage drew away, I heard the music float through the doorway. Just a tune but I know the words fine. Haste ye lassie to my bosom, while the roses are in blossom. Time is precious, dinner lost them. Flowers will fade, and so will ye.
she started getting headaches. At first nobody paid much notice. We all spent too much time in stuffy places with noisy machinery all around us. Most folk had a headache during the week. They went away at the week's end. A good blaw in the green on a Sunday afternoon, that sorted you. Sarah's headaches didn't go away at the week's end. She went to the chemist and he gave her some pills to take away the pain. But it kept coming back. I noticed she was getting tired on her walks. Couldn't manage to go as far. One day we were in the cafe having a cup of tea. She barely touched the scone, held herself tensed up. Sore heat again? I asked. It'll pass. Her face was blanched and she looked thinner than usual. A dark pain touched my heart. You should go to the doctor. It's too dear, George. I've got the money. Don't be daft, you can't do that. Of course I can. I've been saving it for you. For us. I reached across the table and took her on. It was like ice. Don't, George, she said. Everybody's looking. But she never took her hand away. I met her at the doctor's on the Saturday after work. She'd went home first to change and was smart in her blue costume, though so pale you could near see through her skin. When she came out the doctor's office, she said, Take me home, George. Walking along, she held my arm, no lightly the way she used to, but as if she was feared to let go. She was silent. I was waiting for her to speak first, but halfway down the street I couldn't stand it any longer. What did he say, Sarah? What I expected. How do you mean? She stopped, looked in my face. He cried at plumbism. It's the dye. The dye's making you sick. I knew it anyway. I grasped her horns. You knew it was making you sick. Aye. Lots of the lassies get the leads after a few years. Everybody knows. I didn't. Her wrists were that wee my fingers could reach right round them. You kept on working there. I hoped I'd be lucky. What was I supposed to do? There are other jobs. No matter what job you work at, there's something can make you sick. Maggie got blood poisoning for a dirty needle at the weaving shed. My uncle lost his arm in the factory. I have to work, George. My mother needs the money. She'll get no money if you're sick and can't work. Tears started in her eyes. I pulled my arms round her and held her tight. I'm sorry, I didn't mean... I'm just not worried about you. She leaned against me. What did the doctor say? Can he give you something? Just pills. For the pain. You're no going back. I'll take you somewhere. Somewhere nice. Somewhere at the seaside. And you'll get better. Oh, George. She said. I keep walking, from west to east, from the big lit-up houses to the dark tenements, down Buchanan Street with its fancy shops, along Argyle Street in the Trongate, past the big steeple. The place is mobbed with folk out for their Saturday night, their night of freedom for work and care, sounds of singing and laughter for the pubs, a crowd of lassies barring my way. Who's the handsome fella all by himself? Do you know when to join us? I smile and pass them. 
Heed on till I reach the cross. I'm tired. I want to go home, but, but I stop at the cafe first. Can he face my mother and father? Her worried face and him trying to joke me out of it. It's three years now, and they think that's long enough. Time for me to stop brooding and find another lassie. Sarah was a lovely lass, said my mother. It's terrible what happened to her, but there are other fish in the sea. Time you get married and give me some grand wains. There's precious little chance of any for that brother of yours. That was after she found a wee book that I'd copied things into. I'd went to the Mitchell Library and looked it up. They have all kinds of books there. You can find out anything. They know all about it. The doctors, the folk who inspect the factories. The symptoms of plumbism are manifold. One of the earliest signs is pallor of the countenance. There is a developed degree of anemia. In several large dye works, I have examined the girls who handle and pull the yarn covered with yellow dust. I found them anemic, complaining of headache and showing a well-marked blue line on their gums, while several complained that they suffered from colic. In some cases, more serious symptoms developed. A fatal termination is not unknown. She went downhill very quick. She wasn't fit to go to the seaside, was barely fit to go to the fancy tea room in Buchanan Street. The waitresses dressed in black frocks and starched pennies. There were vases of flowers on the tables and a big cake stand with sandwiches and scones and cake. Sarah, white as the lilies on the table, sat across from me. She looked round and smiled, ate as much as she could of the cake and humoured me while I talked of our future, about getting married and all the bairns we were going to have. I finish my tea and leave the cafe, walk the few yards home. My father's in bed, but my mother is still up, hugging the remnants of a fire. You're late, son. Went a good long walk. You're aye walking, son. Aye. She stood up and I put my ear in her shoulder. She's awfully wee, my mother. I'm away to my bed now. Dinner be lying. She touched my cheek. You look tired, son. Aye. I sit and stare at the dregs of the fire. There's precious few flames, just a glow and a flichter that keeps me there. The old wifey say that late at night... You can look into the fire and see the future. But it's too late now. These days, I see nothing but the past. When I was asked to write the piece for the Women's Library based on something in the library, I had no idea what I would choose, how I would be inspired, so I had a completely open mind. And as I was looking through things, I looked a lot at the suffragette magazines and I came across a letter which was talking about the terrible conditions in which some women were working at that time. And in particular, the women who were working in dyeing. And yellow dye was particularly poisonous because it had lead 
in it. And there was a just a mention of how the women actually came out covered in yellow and, you know, how poisonous that was and, and how badly it affected their health. What really got to me about was the, the, the idea of the image of yellow and yellow is such a lovely, bright colour that we think of and we associate with joy. And yet for these women, it was basically, well, if not necessarily a death sentence, but then certainly something which meant that they were going to be very, very ill. I did read a lot, a tremendous amount. At one point I had vast tombs out of the library about industrial diseases and about, you know, all these different kinds of things. I was fortunate to, to be put onto someone who had done a, a dissertation in social history, uh, which was about uh, workers in the East End who were male workers. But again, the information I got from that it was very helpful, and in particular the way in which the the owners of the factories and everybody knew all about it, but didn't um, really do anything until they were forced. In the same way as happened with as asbestos and asbestosis. I mean, industrial diseases, um, and also the other thing which I think is in the story to some extent, is the way in which people accept things because they have no choice. They, they can't go and work somewhere else. They have to have a job. And, you know, jobs are dangerous and that's all there is to it. So I think, again, as well as it's a message from the history of our own culture, but it's also a really thought-provoking in terms of what is going on in the developing world. Um, there are many things that in in the Western world, you know, lots of new phone, new this, new technology, and many of these things are being used. And the metals that are being made from, they cannot certify whether these mines are safe for people. There are people in all sorts of places working incredibly long hours doing all sorts of things in order to make products which we take for granted, but we don't know whether their conditions are safe or not and what the long-term risks to their health are in the same way as 100 years ago in Scotland, in England, in Britain, the same thing was going on um, for lots of people. Thank you for downloading this free 21 Revolutions Glasgow Women's Library podcast. To find out more about 21 Revolutions, visit our website at womenslibrary.org.uk There you can find out about the 21 women writers and the 21 women artists who have produced limited edition artworks available to buy from the library while stocks last. You can also find out more about what we do, why we are special and how you can support us. It's all online at womenslibrary.org.uk